Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be this evening, so find your place there. And we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer we began last week. Last week was more of an introductory thought. And then tonight we'll look, begin to look and break down some thoughts from the Lord's Prayer. Let's begin our reading tonight in verse 7. And this is the instruction of Jesus. Of course, this, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is, is there. Uh, he, he, he's in this setting uh, where, where he would be you know, teaching his disciples in a hillside setting. Sea of Galilee would be in the background there. When Elizabeth and I were in Israel in our group that's going next September, uh, we'll get to, you know, they always have this saying in Israel, if not here, then near. And there's this setting, this real pastoral setting. And, and it's just a beautiful setting where the Lord would have delivered this sermon, where he would have spoke these words. And so in verse 7, he says, when you pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard from speaking. So he says, be not like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. And then verse 9 tonight, where our emphasis will be, he says, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let's pray tonight. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us and the chance to be together for a good week. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you'd speak to us tonight and Lord, draw us closer to you Father, may each of us have a better understanding of this prayer and the, the, the template you've laid here for us to follow. And Lord, may we uh, just fall more in love with you and our ability to communicate with you and to present to you, Lord, our needs, uh, but then also come to you with the right understanding and spirit. And so I pray that you'd help us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We said some of these things last week, but that those in Scripture who made the biggest impact were people who were people who prayed. That prayer in and of itself is essential for the believer's ability to function in the world. And of course, gave the illustration in the physical world, we need air for our lungs and our oxygen. In the spiritual world, if we were to, to see it for what it is and the way that Paul talks about it in the New Testament, we know that prayer is, is a natural essence, it's an outpouring of our hearts to God. It's so essential in our ability to function in the proper way. And, and there is no other substitute for it. There's nothing that can substitute for prayer and time with God and in interaction with Him. Prayer literally changes the circumstances of our lives. It changes hearts. It changes our world. And too often, we will try to accomplish good in the absence of prayer. And man, we'll work hard. We'll give our best effort. We'll put forth our best, our, our best foot. And we'll do all these things and then fail to pray about things that God stands ready to intercede on our behalf. And then we said this, that prayer isn't just about changing circumstances, it's about changing us. And the disciples, as they observed the Lord, and, and this model, this template prayer is repeated in Luke 11, as the disciples were observing Jesus in prayer and the impact of His ministry and the impact of His life. And there were so many things they could have asked Him, but the, the priority to them was, Lord, teach us to pray. Because we see the impact of your life, we see the difference that it makes, and we want that kind of impact in our life. We want to make that kind of difference, and we want that kind of power. And so, would you teach us to pray as they observed his prayer? These were the kinds of requests they made. Teach us to pray like you pray. And so, Jesus' response in Luke 11, verse 2, he said, when you pray, he says, say. And then he gives this template. And in Matthew, and Matthew kind of expounds this just a little bit more in, in the verse that we read to the night, Jesus said, after this manner, therefore, pray ye. 
Okay, when Christ says, I want you to pray like this, he isn't necessarily saying, I want you to pray these exact words over and over and over again. And some churches do that, and some people do that. And, and, and it, not that there's evil or wrong in that. This is not misunderstand what the Lord's saying here. When he says pray like this, he's not saying say the Lord's prayer in repetition because he just finished saying don't pray with repetition. And we just read the verse, and I'll read it again for emphasis. He says, verse 7, when you pray, use not vain repetition. And then he says this, as the heathen do. So people who pray in repetition... Well, the insinuation is they're praying like heathen do. Don't do that. But he is saying, here's a template. Here's a model to follow. And if we want to follow that model, it's good for us to go into some depth and understand it and, 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 and take our prayers to a new level in our understanding and reminding ourselves of God's intent here. That's not to say memorizing it isn't helpful or that to pray it would be inappropriate or wrong. It's just a formula. It's a template. It's a model that gives us direction to our own praise, to our own adoration of God, and to our own petitions that we bring before Him. And so Jesus instructs us. And His first way of instructing us is to help us to understand how to address God. And He wants us to address God in a specific way. So how do we address God? Well, in the Scripture, there are many titles and there are many names that are given to God. For instance, there would be the, the name El. And anytime you see the word El or the name El, it, it, it just means God. But then we don't just see El in Scripture. In the Hebrew, we also see that built upon and other names added to El. So we see El Elyon. It means this, God Most High. And He is. He's the only God. He is higher than anything else. We see El Shaddai, which would mean God Almighty. We see the word Adonai, and, and that would be translated as Lord. Often we see the name Yahweh, and it means I am that I am, or I am the source and the sustainer of life. And oftentimes in the English Bible, when you get to that word, and it'll be in all caps. And so when you see that word Lord, but it's in all caps, that's typically the word Yahweh. In the Old Testament, it appears over 6,000 times. And we have to remember, that would have been the Bible that Jesus and his disciples would have read and been familiar with. They probably didn't have a personal copy. It would have been kept probably at the temple or other places. But that was the Bible that they heard from. They, they memorized. And so they were used to hearing God referred to as Yahweh. But when Jesus taught his disciples to pray... He taught them to pray in a way that appears rarely in the Old Testament. And he taught them to come to God. And when they address him in prayer, to address him with this, this, this name, Father, our Father, come to him in this specific way. All right, let me give some context here for a moment. There is a unique challenge that we as Christians and we as individuals sometimes face when we draw on the analogy of God as a father. Because each of us has had, and for some have, different experiences with our fathers. Okay, so, so I would say this up front. Does anyone here have a perfect father? And, and, and the answer, is, the question's rhetorical, and the answer is no. 
it, the man doesn't exist. The only perfect father would be God. So I understand that. But some people have amazing dads. Uh, they have dads that are present. They have dads that are protective. They have dads that are loving. They have dads that are involved in their children's lives. They have dads that sacrifice and think about their children and pray for their children. They're amazing. Um, some people have average dads. Yeah, he's got some strengths. He's got some weaknesses. He's, eh, he's an average dad. But many people's experience of their earthly father is painful. And some have dads who are absent from their life. And some have dads who are emotionally distant and disconnected from them. Or maybe worse, maybe they're emotionally abusive to their children through the words and the way that they speak to them. Or maybe the way that they neglect them and are cold towards them. Or maybe even another degree worse where they are both emotionally abusive and physically abusive in their treatment of their children. For some people, using the imagery of father to represent God makes it really hard for them to believe. No matter what is said, but makes it really hard for them to believe that, that deep down inside of their hearts, there is a God who is loving, who's warm, who's tender, who, who's attentive, who is kind, and who can be trusted. One author Roberta Bondi, she wrote these words that, that some can identify with in, in, in some measure or another. She said, I grew up with a loving but authoritarian perfectionist father who left the family when I was 11. She said, like many other people having transferred to God the Father all the pain I felt around my human father, I simply couldn't get past the father language of the prayer to reach God. I was hurting so much and so mistrustful of God. And so whether your dad's amazing or whether he's average or whether he's painful, all of us at some degree, we don't have a perfect father and we project our father in some measure onto who God is as a father. And maybe Jesus just maybe chose the image of father not because God is like our earthly father, but instead, because God is the Father that so many people long for and that they never have had. And as Alyssa saying a moment ago, he's not cold and he's not distant. He, he's very present and he is warm. And if that's you tonight who would say, you know, my impression of Father isn't good or maybe it's even painful, I want you to listen to these words carefully. Your earthly father is not the pattern for God's fatherhood. Instead, God is the pattern and example of what a father is meant to be. He's the example. He's the standard. He's what we shoot for. One man said, any fool can have a child. That doesn't make you a father. It's the courage to raise a child that makes you a father. You know who said that? Barack Obama. A man who, I would assume, based on his life choices, 
doesn't know the Lord as his Savior. Many of us have and would criticize him, and yet, perhaps, he has been a better father to his daughters and shown them a better view of God than many Christian fathers. You can't be a perfect dad. You can't be a perfect father. But shame on us if we don't try to show our kids, at the very least, a reflection of God as their father. And so in this way, Jesus' words in this text are instructive. God as a father is steadfast. And he is faithful. And no matter what else you think of your, your earthly father, God your father is loving. And he is kind. And he is compassionate. And he is merciful. And dads, I, I, I think a good prayer for us, and even though this is a little unrelated text, but as we, we address this issue of fatherhood and being a father, I think a prayer for us would simply, for us to pray that our children would catch a glimpse of the love of their father in heaven inside of you. And say, God, in some degree, the children that I raise and that are under me, Lord, would you help me to reflect in the best way I can who you are to them? For all of us here, we have to internalize this truth as it relates to our Father. Earthly fathers are not the pattern for what it means to call God Father. God is the pattern earthly fathers should seek to emulate. This metaphor for Father was really important to Jesus. He referred to God as His Father more than any other address. In the Sermon on the Mount, there are 17 different times when he refers to God as Father. When I address God as my Father, um, it naturally makes me think of my relationship with my children. And, and I would assume that would be true for, for, for the dads here. Like so many of you with your children, I could never have imagined the love that I could have had in my heart for someone until Sophia and Catherine and then Ethan and then David were born. And it just blew my mind. Each of those moments in my life, I felt like my heart would burst with love. Those little pink, wrinkly, chubby little babies captured me in a way nothing else has ever had. And I'm not a perfect father, but I do love my children fiercely. I want to give them everything I can for a good, in a joy-filled life. When they hurt, it hurts me. I feel pride in their character, their acts of service. I have joy in my heart when they talk to me and actually express a desire to be with me. The little sticky notes they leave me, I don't throw one of them away. I stick them in my Bibles and in my files all over my office. When they hug me, my heart swells. I, I truly believe that I would freely give my life to rescue or save them if it ever came to that. But all of that aside, I, I am very mindful that I can never be to them a father in a way that their heavenly father can be. And I'll never reflect him fully the way I would want to in my heart. And, and Jesus wants us to come to God as the standard of fatherhood. And he wants you to know tonight, you have a father. You have a heavenly father who is the epitome of goodness and tenderness and love. And Jesus addressed him in that way.
but he didn't just address him as my father or the father. He, he addressed him specifically, and he frames it this way. He says, when you come to the Lord, when you're going to pray to him, I want you to pray in this way. I want you to come to him and say these words, our father. Both Matthew and Luke specify this. It's not a mistake. It's significant. So we might pray alone to God, but we have to remember that he is our father collectively. He's the God of us all. And throughout the prayer, Jesus goes on to use the pronoun of us. Us is used by a speaker to refer to himself or to herself and one or more other people as the object of that verb or preposition. And so he says in verse 11, give us. Our Father, give us. This day, our. He goes on in verse 12, forgive us as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. He says in verse 13, lead us. He says, deliver us. This isn't a mistake. This stands in stark contrast to our natural tendency to think of prayer as a tool that benefits me. Like, I'm going to come to God, I'm going to pray today, but I'm going to make sure that I pray about my concerns and what, what, what's, what's touching me. And, and, and there's certainly place for that. And that is not evil or wrong, but the Lord is reminding us that He is the God of us. He is our God. The old man, the flesh, focuses his attention on me and my and mine. And Jesus instead says, when you come to God, here's the template. Pray about us. Pray about ours. Pray for we. Yes, He's inviting us to pray for ourselves. But he is also inviting us to pray for the world that is around us, for the people that are in our homes and in our churches and our communities and in our world. The prayer reminds us that Christian faith isn't to be lived out alone, but it's to be lived out in community with one another. We are commissioned to pray for one another. Jesus himself in his earthly ministry, he organized this community of believers. Yes, he had the 12 disciples. But as you read about his ministry and where he went, he also had a lot of women that traveled with him too. And he had a lot of families and couples and all these, this throng of people. And yes, he had 12, 12 specific apostles here. Yeah. But he had a whole group of people that he put together and he commissioned them and they followed him and he built this community. He didn't live the Christian life in exclusion. He didn't live it by himself. Yes, he went away to pray and he came right back to the group. And so to acknowledge God as our Father is to also acknowledge an obligation that we have toward one another. That those who are made in the image and likeness of God, we are to pray for. So we are to pray to God as our Father, but he's our Father. And, and that's what, how we come to him. It's how we approach him. So then this question presents itself. Well, then where is our father? Has a child ever asked you, where does God live? <laughs> Maybe that was just my kids. I don't know. I've got some deep theological questions from my children through the years. Where does God live? In his prayer, Jesus says he's in heaven. Okay, let me, let me break this down for a second. And I know it's Wednesday night. So hang with me for a minute, all right? I'm going somewhere. So let me, let me, let me give a little a lecture, informational lecture here, all right? And then we'll get back to it. 
In the Greek word here for heaven, it's Uranus. And it's from which we have the word Uranus, the seventh planet from the sun. Okay? So Uranus, or Uranus, was in Greek mythology, he was the god of the sky. Okay, so this is the word that's used when he says, who art in heaven. At times, the word Uranus, heaven, was used to describe everything that was between um, the ground and then the dome that would be above the ground. So we look at the sky and we see this, it's the, it's the atmosphere, it's the breath, it's the air we breathe, it's what the birds fly in. Got it? Okay, so the ground and, the, and, then, and, then, and then the heaven above us, or, or the dome, if you will. It's distinct from the earth. The earth refers to both the physical, visible world and the realm in which humans have dominion. And then they often live, as we do, apart from God. Okay, we don't fully live apart from Him, but we sometimes do. And, and, and much of the world does, apart from, from who God is and recognizing His power in our lives. When heaven and Father are combined in this passage in Matthew, as in this opening prayer, Matthew uses this word, aranos, but he makes it plural. And so he says this word, aranois. And this is important because it's different from singular. He's not saying heaven, he's saying heavens. So he's saying aranois. It's, it's, this, it's, this, it's this plural context. And it's distinct from the earth, the material world, and yet it envelops both. So he's saying, yes, everything that you see, he's saying the earth, the dome, the atmosphere, the air we breathe, yes, that is, would be considered how they're using the word heaven, but also everything that's outside of it, including the things we don't see. So including the spiritual realm, including, including, including angelic beings, um, including, including things we, we, that aren't visible to our eye, and including everything that's beyond our universe, like the Milky Way, the galaxy, and the galaxies as they, as they extend into the universe. And so he's saying he's the God of all of this. Like the air and like the wind, we breathe it, we feel it, we can't see it. The idea behind him saying that God is as our Father who is in heaven, he is saying we are surrounded by heaven. So it's this oinos, it's not, it's not singular, it's not this specific place, it's, it's the heavens, it's, it's everything encompassing. It's, it's we're surrounded by heaven. And the point is this, heaven isn't always up there, because if you ask a child where's heaven, well we all would point up, we, and we don't know exactly what we mean by up, but we just say up. And it's not necessarily out there, in scripture it is also that it is around us what we can't see. And so in this sense, God is as near as the air we breathe. So if you were to ask a child, if a child would say, where is God? And you were to say heaven. And Jesus in this passage would say, yeah, in one word we would just say, well, he's present. Like he's here. Like that's where God is. A better question that we might frame is like this, where is God not? Okay, I want you to turn your Bibles to Psalms 139. This is the Wednesday night crowd. So I did not put the words on the screen for you tonight, all right? I'm going to make you work. We, we could do that for our Sunday morning crowd, but we're not going to do that for you, all right? This is the idea we find in Psalms 139. Okay, I'm, I'm going to wait till, just a second until hear some pages stop rustling.
Okay. For sake of time, I'm going to start reading verse 7. And the psalmist says this, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? All right. If I were to get away from God, and God was confined to heaven, wherever that is, then that makes sense that if he's confined to heaven, then, there, then I could get away from him. But you can't. And so he says, whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence, if I ascend up into heaven? Okay, now this is not Greek, this is Hebrew, this is a different language, but in the Hebrew it would have been singular, okay? And we're in the plural. So he says, if I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, where is God? Well, he's there, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance not was, was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and carelessly wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members are written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more numbered than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. And the psalmist just says this, God's in heaven. This is what Jesus is saying. He's just present. He is all around us. He is the Father who will always be there for you. We would say it this way in modern vernacular. He is not an absentee father. He's not absent emotionally. He's not absent physically. He's there. He's present. He's with you at all times, and he will always be there for you. He will never not take your call. He will never not text you back. He will never not show up. He will always love you. He will be present for you in your life, physically and emotionally. He has been, he is, and he will be there for you. Jesus says, our Father, who art in heaven, he's here. He's your Father, and he is present. And no matter what image you might project on God from the experience with your, heavenly, your, your earthly father, if he was cold, if he was distant, if he was harsh, if he's judgmental, if he lost his temper, if he gets angry, if he ignores you, if he doesn't call you back, that's not your heavenly father. He is none of those things. He's perfect. And he's a good father. And he is in heaven, meaning he's present with you. We are to remind ourselves of this. And now Jesus comes to the request. And so he says this, our Father, chart in heaven, you're good and you're present and you're with us. And I'm going to remind myself of that as I pray to him every single day. That is the context of my relationship to him. It's the context of your relationship to him. It's how you come to him. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed. Be thy name. How is that a request? What are we asking for? And why are we asking it? 
Um, hallowed isn't a word we use very frequently. Oh, I can't remember the last term. Last time I said the word hallowed. What is a hollow? <laughs> Not a hollow, a hallow. It's a Randy Travis song is what it is. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines it this way. To make holy, to consecrate, to set apart. The Latin word is sanctus, from which we get the word sanctify. To be hallowed or holy is to be set apart for God. It's to be set apart for His purposes. It's the idea that one is wholly different from the ordinary. Hallowed. This is just different. Set apart. In this prayer, Jesus is teaching us that we are asking God to hallow or to make God's name holy. Okay, here's the question still. Let me press. Let me keep pressing. How does God hallow His own name? Like how, how is it still? Still, how is this a petition? Like how, how is this a request? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. This is a petition. This is a request. How is that a petition? How is that a request? Okay. Well, last week we looked at this, but let's return to the premise of the prayer. When we pray, we are to pray for something that's specific. We focus our heart on that object. It, it, this, this is the concern. This is the specific request. And then we invite God to work through us as He does in His answered prayer all throughout Scripture. He works through us and He works through other people to answer the request. We said this last week, is God in the business of miracles? Yes. But miracles by definition are unique and inordinary. Like they, happen, they happen so infrequently and so rarely. That's why they're a miracle. How does God typically answer prayer requests? Through us, through you, through me. And so we focus in prayer our object and our attention on this specific request. And it's as if we're saying, God, now we need this fixed. And God says, that's right. And He begins to work on us often to fix and address the problem. And so in this request that God might hollow His name, the prayer for God to hollow His name, we are literally inviting God to use us to hallow His name, to make His name holy. How do we hallow His name? Well, I would say we, we hallow His name through our praise. You know, Jesse stands up here a few minutes ago. He, he leads these songs. Uh, Sunday morning, he has such a big role in our lives in that way as he leads us to hallow God, to set Him apart. You know, I love love songs with my wife, and that's setting her apart because she's, she's my wife, and that's, she's different. She's set apart in that way. And, and, I, and I come to church and I'm going to do something similar. I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to set Him apart. I'm going to hallow His name. And, and as Jesse leads us in the songs and in the comments that he makes, we're praising God. We're, we're setting Him apart. We're honoring Him. And there would be other ways we would do that. We hallow His name in the honor that we show Him, in the money that we give to Him. We said, this is set apart for you, God. You're holy. You're hallowed. And I, and I, and I give this to you. But perhaps the most important way that we hallow God's name is living a life that reflects our understanding of His love, of His goodness, of His majesty, 
of his beauty and saying, I'm going to live this kind of a certain kind of life because I understand who he is. I understand the kind of father he is. I can understand the kind of God he is. And so I'm going to let that reflect in my life. The Bible teaches us that all creation is to hallow God's name, to bring him glory and honor. And sometimes we sing the song, you know, in my life, Lord, be glorified. That's the prayer here. And then the end of that song says, today. But that's the timeline, like today. So today, Lord, hollow our Father. Lord, Lord, today, who art in heaven, you're present. You're with me everywhere I go. You're with me here as I kneel beside my chair in the morning with my cup of coffee. But I'm going to get up and I'm going to leave this place and I'm going to go to the office and you're present there with me too. And I'm going to enter into the hallway at school and I'm going to go into the classroom and I'm going to sit down by these students and God, you're present and you're with me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to lunch in the cafeteria. And I'm going to interact with other people and my clients. And then I'm going to go home for the day to my family. And God, you're there and you're hollow and you're, and, you're, and you're with me here, Father. You're present. So our Father, who art in heaven, in these circumstances and everywhere I go today, in my life, may you be glorified. May I hollow your name in my staff meeting. May I hollow your name as I fly to vacation. May I hollow your name in the conversations that I have and the text messages that I send and the engagement on social media. God, in my life, would you be hollowed? Because you're present with me and there's nowhere I can go from your presence. The prayer to hollow God's name is the positive side of the third commandment. You know what that one is, Exodus 27. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And in our lives, we either misuse and denigrate God's name or we hollow God's name by what we say and how we live. We denigrate and misuse God's name in our treatment of our spouse or we hollow God's name. We denigrate, misuse God's name in how we respond or interact with our children, with our friends the co-workers, or we hollow it and we make it holy because he's set apart. People that we are called to reach are repelled often by Christianity because they witness Christians who don't hallow God's name. And that's what he's saying. Don't take my name in vain. It's not a word that little children use on the playground. That's a lifestyle. And our understanding of that is incredibly naive and childish, if that's what we think it is. Christians in their politics, in their business dealings, in their relationships, are too often found to be unkind, materialistic, and judgmental, and self-centered, and insensitive, manipulative. And the thinking goes like this. If that's what God's followers are like, I'm not interested. <laughs> I mean, if, if that guy's a preacher and that's how he treats his wife and children, psh, why do I want that? If, that? if that guy goes to church every Sunday and I see him walk out and he looks like he's going to church and I see him come back and he put a track on my door and then ran away real quick, but I saw him and I know who put that track there. 
And then he, I hear him through the window yelling and screaming and cursing and watching that kind of entertainment. How do I need that? Or he mistreats his coworkers or his employees this way. See, at some point, the list goes on here, every single one of us has profaned God's name. But if we can profane his name, then it's equally true we can also hollow it. And we can start our day, every day, by praying, Father in heaven, you're present with me, and I know. And so help me today to hallow your name. Father, help me today to show others through my life and my attitude and my treatment, my friends, who you are. Help me to love them. Help me to show your love for them. Help others to observe me and see in my life and in my attitude and the things that I do and say how set apart you are. How are we to address God? Father. Where is your Father? He's present. How is His name hallowed? Through your life. So in your life tonight, here's the question. Are you hallowing His name? Are you in some measure trying to reflect the love and the goodness and the warmth of God? What do others know about God? By watching you. What do your kids know about God? What do they see through you? What do your neighbors see? What do your clients see? God is, He is our Father. And He is present. And we are meant to live our lives in such a way that His name isn't taken in vain in our lives. But instead, it is hallowed through us. It's set apart. It's holy. It's, if that's your God, that's attractive. And I need Him. And that's how we witness. That's so much more important than putting a piece of paper on somebody's door and then arguing about whether or not there's Bible verses on it. That comes through your life. It comes through who you are. Hallowed be thy name through me and through you. Let me ask you to stand tonight.